I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Creed 3 delivers a box office haymaker edition. It's Wednesday, March 8th, 2023. On today's show, the movie franchise Creed, it's a, what do you even call it, Dana? Reboot, spinoff, something. It's a derivative of the original Rocky movies from the 70s and 80s. It now has a third installment, Creed 3. It killed it at the weekend B.O. I'm told it, it not only returns Michael B. Jordan in the title role, but also he directed the film, we'll discuss. And then our Oscar march concludes with My Year of Dicks, nominated for Best Animated Short. Oh, dear God, it's good. I know I shouldn't tip my hand. It's so good. Oh, dear, it's good. And finally, we discuss, uh, I love this headline, The Scandalous, Clueless, Irresistible Oscars, How the Academy Holds On to Its Prestige. Despite a history of embarrassment, Data, who wrote this ridiculously <laughs> knee-jerk contrarian screed in the Atlantic? I can't quite make out the byline. Who was that? Well, first of all, as usual, I did not write that title. That's the grabby <laughs> title written by the Atlantic editors. But yes, that is uh, by me, and it's a review of a new book about the history of the Oscars. It's a tremendously good uh, essay. I didn't mean to be glib, and I'm psyched we're discussing. So, uh, perfect lead into the ceremony itself. I'm joined by uh, Julia Turner, the deputy. Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate. Uh, Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. Uh, Shall we make a show? Let's do it. Let's dig in. All right. Well, Creed 3 is the new installment in the sort of Rocky reboot. It's built around the son of Rocky's old rival, Apollo Creed, from the original movies. Uh, He's Adonis Creed. He's played by Michael B. Jordan in these films. And well, you know, I mean, it's like if you've seen any sports movie franchise, you kind of know the drill. Creed, by which I mean the franchise, needs to somehow refresh itself and uh, manufacture a meaningfully villainous rival to keep everything going. And, you know, the funny thing about this one is I think they sort of did it. Damian Anderson is a childhood friend and gifted boxer who almost by sheer luck of the draw has been rotting in prison for 18 years as opposed to his old friend Adonis. Now he's out and he wants his title shot, but is he an old friend or really more of an avenging demon for Adonis, the film stars? Jonathan Major is Damien Dame, and the film, as I said, it's directed by Michael B. Jordan. In the clip we're about to hear, the two childhood friends finally reunite after nearly two decades apart. Let's listen. Hey, my man. Can I help you? Let me get an autograph. No, I ain't signing an autograph, but you get off my car. Holy. You don't remember me, huh? Come a long way from bumming rides from your mom. Damn. Boy, you, you had you had you had me. Damien. Yeah, just got back to the hood, stopped by the old gym, but uh Yeah, we upgraded a couple years ago. Huh? See. It's been a minute. Dana, I thought movies were supposed to be dead. I think we're kind of all, we were all shocked this morning to discover that Creed 3 enjoyed the biggest opening for a sports movie ever. What'd you make of it? And, uh, and let's get around to maybe trying to explain the incredible legs of, of a non-Marvel, non-Star Wars franchise. 
I mean, honestly, my favorite thing about this movie is that it did that well at the box office. (laughs) I was surprised and impressed by that. It made me um, happy for Michael B. Jordan's future in directing and also for, you know, just this reboot of a franchise that Ryan Coogler started. You Mm -hmm. know, Ryan Coogler is less involved with this installment. He has a credit on the story. His brother is actually the co-screenwriter. But I mentioned him just to to shout out to the sort of revivification of, you know, this this franchise that he helped to be responsible for. The, all that said, I didn't really love this movie, Qua Movie, and I'm very curious what the two of you think about it. There are so many things about it that, that do work. Actually, that scene we just heard is an excellent scene. Jonathan Majors Agreed. and Michael B. Jordan are both wonderful. There's lots of great acting in here. Um, the, the direction is kind of interesting in ways that we'll talk about. Michael B. Jordan has some stylistic touches that are very different from this, the, the more um, realistic style that Ryan Coogler brought to his two installments. But this just hit to me so many familiar sports movie beats. Uh, I felt that a lot of story arcs were too quickly and easily resolved. Um, after having been set up to be, you know, much more full of conflict, they sort of resolved too too simply. And this is a very standard complaint about sports movies, but I felt like all the female characters were, you know, just sort of paper doll cutouts. Uh, that said, I mean, it's it's extremely entertaining in parts. I can see why it did so well. I can see why it's a crowd pleaser. And I really just want to hear what the two of you thought. I wanted to love this movie much more than I did. And let me say that Ryan Coogler's original Creed was one of my favorite movies of the year it came out. So I was maybe holding this to too high a standard. Uh, Julia, what about you? What you, what'd you make of it? I mean, it was a very enjoyable couple hours at the movie. It's a beautiful movie. And it is it is exciting in terms of what Michael B. Jordan's directing career could hold it's like a it's assured and it's interesting and the fights are shot um clearly and also inventively which is like hard to do like if you're like i'm gonna come up with a new way to help people who don't know anything about boxing follow a boxing match that's fake and choreographed but needs to look really real (laughs) like he tries a bunch of different stuff some of which works really well some of which is a little goofy um i think the thing that left me feeling I was left feeling like thoughtful and huh at the end of the movie, which I think was the movie's intent, but is not the kind of feeling I associate with finishing watching a Rocky movie, right? Like it, it, this is not a spoiler in part because scenes from this are in the trailer and in part because our listeners are very smart and they understand what a Rocky movie is. But like the film builds towards a fight between the two characters we just heard. And um, yet because of the way that the that Dame Jonathan Majors' character is established because of what the plot is. You don't spend that whole fight rooting hard for Michael B. Jordan's Donnie to like crush him. Like you are because it's a sports movie and you want your the lead to win. But as you're rooting for him to like deliver the knockout blow, you're also like, God, why do why am I rooting for this? Like I, know. I don't know, man. That 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 other character seems like he's had a hard life. And the movie knows that. Like, that's an intent of the movie. It's almost trying to problematize the feeling we have when we watch boxing, which is always what's jarring about watching the other Rocky movies when you're like, yeah, bloodlust. <laughs> and then you finish, you're like, what did I just do? And this movie is more consonant, I think, with modern feelings about these violent sports and what it means to watch them and root for them and the damage that they inflict on the characters who who perform them, the people who perform them. But 
yeah, I think this movie was like smarter and more thoughtful about violence than a Rocky movie, which should be to its credit, but left me feeling like slightly missing the like, woohoo, mm-hmm. that I was expecting at the end. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I mean, I thought the best thing about the movie was that that Michael B. Jordan learned uh, the lesson of the of Black Panther, which is that you can take a potentially boring franchise you know, IP and turned it into a parable about types, rival types of black masculinity. And you cast two extraordinary actors to personify each of them uh, and then watch as they become sort of frenemy rivals and fight to the death, right? Like they're, they don't fight to the death in this movie, but, um, and that really works. And it works in part because Michael B. Jordan is just an extraordinary actor, uh, extraordinary intelligence as an actor. He plays a boxer with grace and, and real of beauty and credibility. Uh, but Jonathan Majors is amazing in the same way that Killmonger is the heart of that first movie. You know, the villain of, of, of Black Panther um, gives it all of its energy and, and coherence. Um, uh, I thought Jonathan Majors did the same for this film. He's extraordinary. Um, and there's a kind of showbiz cheese to the whole movie, which is sort of giving you both the appeal and decadence of the ex-champs life now uh la cheese to it right that that's enviable in one sense and just kind of gross in another i think and cutting through it is just the acid you know of this man's anger which is a social rage and it's like two young black kids were in the wrong place at the wrong time and one of them just happened to get away and one of them just happened not to and the lives in some sense were interchangeable up to that moment they were both extraordinary you know athletes of extraordinary potential as boxers and it's so it's exactly right julia you understand the origin of his rage and his darkness and his anger at the you know supposed hero of the movie so it's both that the movie's incredibly smart and at the same time it's trying to hit the beats of a rocky film and it's like at moments I, i was like this is an extraordinary gesture um, to undercut and try to deliver the thing. And there were other moments when I was like, that's cake and eating. We're in cake and eating it too. Right. Territory. And we can't yeah. really get into it without spoiling too much right. of the no, movie. Exactly. But but that's what I mean about the character arcs, especially Jonathan Major's character, not being satisfyingly resolved in some way. You know, there's so much put into making him this, not the villain, but this sympathetic, as you say, frenemy kind of foil of the Creed character. And then, and I can't get it to it further than that, but then at the end, I think a lot of that is sort of, is, is lost in the need to create a, mm-hmm. a satisfying sports finale. Yeah, and similarly, Tessa Thompson's character, you know, who seems, I actually don't think she seems paper thin because she's, she has such presence, Tessa Thompson, as an actor. So she feels more fully lived in, and I think because we've been with her through several films now, she exudes a reality beyond what's necessarily written for her. But then there's a critical moment where they're kind of heading towards this, you know, that's like, oh, what do we do? But this frenemy and there's sympathy, but that there's a line that's been crossed. And then somehow in the log- like the logic of the Rocky film reasserts itself over the like real human logic that powers most of the movie. And he's like, there's only one thing I can do, obviously fight him. And does <laughs> a Thompson's character who nothing in the movie suggests would feel or say this at all is like yeah you got to like she just gives him this affirming (laughs) nod like definitely fighting (laughs) in the ring coming out of retirement is the is the only way forward and you're like what wait what (laughs) no that's not what you would say 
<laughs> no, their daughter as well. I mean, I don't want to give away too much about this, but but there's something throughout the whole film about the daughter wanting to become a boxer, and then Tessa Thompson, her mother, thinks that she shouldn't, you know, sort of be exposed to that culture of violence and spectacle and show business and so forth. But who is plonked down in the front row to watch her dad <laughs> beat his former best friend to a pulp? Oh, the yeah, little girl. the presence of the kid in the in the ring. And, you know, the other, the other thing that made me think of was just, like, boxing. Like, not only have movies changed their place in the culture completely since the Rocky franchise, right? Like, but boxing has. Think about, like, the original Rocky comes out in 76, right? That's, like, in the very heart of the Ali Frazier rivalry, the greatest heavyweight rivalry in the history of the, in the history of the sport. It's as it leads into the Ali Foreman rivalry, which is a close second, right rumble in the jungle i mean like the you know then we were kings the extraordinary documentary with the voices of and presences of george plimpton and norman mailer the ability of and let's be honest like white male middle-aged journalists to mythologize the sport of boxing um dominated by black athletes like that hate like all of that is gone right and it's just migrated into mma a sport that that I would argue very few civilized people would be attracted to in the same way. You don't see great present day intellect, like iconic intellectuals arguing over the deep mythic resonances of, uh, of MMA. And it's like Rocky just hit a heyday of the early, the early heyday of the blockbuster. And it entered directly into the subconscious, the sort of dream life of, of a country um, on the on the wings of a great boxing picture, but Julia, the problem with it was always that it that that was a racial parable. It was a racist parable. With the benefit of hindsight, it is literally about overwhelmingly white audiences celebrating the great white hope finally triumphing in, in, in the ring against a black boxer. And if nothing else, I would say two things. One is. This is a Rocky story, a movie, a franchise movie, non-Marvel movie, just killed at the box office. That made me, makes me want to get up on my feet. And secondly, like this franchise is now entirely out of the shadow of Rocky Balboa and Sylvester Stallone. God bless them both. They had their place in history. But, you know, um, Stallone was in the second one. He's not in the third one. His ghost is gone. And it is, if nothing else, is, is a racial corrective to the first one. Yeah, and I think that was, I mean, there's been some reporting that there was conflict over the storyline or or some issues, like he was invited to be in it and is not in it. And one of the questions coming in is, can a, can a Rocky movie survive and thrive without Sylvester Stallone? And yeah, I mean, I think, like, to me, what I really loved about this movie, and I would, I would recommend that people go see it, it was pretty fun to see it in a crowded theater, even if it like a a smart boxing movie should leave you thinking, huh? And not woohoo. Like that's correct. Like as you know, even just describing the sort of history of, of the cultural place of boxing as a sport, like, you know, the lack of a kind of hyper intellectualized conversation around MMA seems correct. <laughs> like seems like maybe that would have been the appropriate approach to boxing. <laughs> like not, not, um, you know, like, I, I like the idea, I like the fact that Michael B. Jordan has sort of taken this franchise into his own hands and is doing something different and more complicated with it and that people are really excited to see it. Mm-hmm. And I also, I mean, I, I, I do, you know, I know it's sort of the year of Jonathan Majors. He He's also the villain in the Ant-Man movie. Um, 
he he was making waves in a film at Sundance that will be coming out. Like he just getting to see him as a performer um, and the way that he combines sort of righteousness, menace, mischief, and heartbreak in this role is astonishing. Like so, so much of it hangs on those two central performances and their, and their, that, that kind of acting boxing match between the two of them mm. is so well balanced and so great to watch that it's just hard not to really root for this movie. Absolutely. I mean, when I saw Last Black Man uh, in San Francisco, uh, the, among many takeaways, but the big one was that man is going to be a star, Jonathan Majors. I said, go see this movie, Creed Three. It's in movie theaters now. Check it out. All right, let's move on. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we typically discuss business. Dana, what uh, what do we have this week? Thanks, Steve. We have two items of business this week, both of which will be relevant to our beloved Slate Plus members. First of all, Slate is hosting a special virtual event this Thursday, March 9th. It's called Heroes and Villains of the Academy Awards, and it's only for Slate Plus members. So if you have a membership, you can zoom into this. This event will feature Dan Coyce, who is hosting me, Sam Adams, Nadira Goff, all people that you should be very familiar with if you listen to this podcast or read Slate on a regular basis. And we will be chatting about the Oscars. We'll talk about our favorite and least favorite nominees, our ideas about what might win and what should win. We'll answer questions from any listeners, readers who are Zooming in with us, do some trivia, which I'm a little scared of because there's some real trivia nerds at Slate who will, I'm sure, crush me at it. And we will just generally hang out and have an Oscars-related good time. So if you are a Slate Plus member, you'll be able to access this event by logging into your account and going to slate.com slash Party. Once again, that's slate.com slash Party. No punctuation or caps there. And it is scheduled for this Thursday, March the 9th at 5 p.m. Eastern time. So we hope to see you there and uh, and chat with you about the Oscars. Our second item of business is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. We were inspired, since we have a movie-themed podcast this week, to talk about an article that appeared in Vulture by Lane Brown called Bad Projection is Ruining the Movie Theater Experience. I can tell you that this went totally viral among my narrow film Twitter community last week. Everybody was talking about experiences of bad projection, bad lighting, bad sound, non-existent sound, other poor 
movie theater experiences that they had had. Lane Brown talks about why this is the case and interviews a bunch of projectionists and specialists in theater image quality. It's a fascinating article and an important article if you care about the future of movie theaters, as I hope all our listeners do. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear us talk about that at the end of the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. When you're a Slate Plus member, you'll get ad-free podcasts, you'll get bonus segments like the one I just described, and of course, you will get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate. Most important of all, you'll be supporting us, our work, and the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships are really important for Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right, Steve, back to the show. All right. Well, My Year of Dicks is an animated short nominated for the best in that category for an Oscar, directed by Sarah Gunnar's daughter. It's written and created by Pamela Ribbon. It's based on her uh, own memoir about her 15-year-old self's quest over a summer to lose her virginity. What follows is a wild phantasmagoria of false starts and dead ends and gothic misplays, all narrated with swoony inner monologues and wildly fanciful graphics. Um, The film includes a ton of voiceover narration from Pam, the the protagonist, along with layer upon layer of sound design. Here's a moment from early in the film when Pam sets her sights on a skateboarder who kind of resembles, at least in her inner world, a vampire. Let's listen. Dear David, the skater I know from riding the bus, as I watch you fall, I can only think about how much I'm falling for you. Over and over, your bones seem to yearn for freedom the way mine ache for your embrace. He's such a doof. He's not a doof. You know I can do this. Come on. I love how you file your nails into sharp points, those tiny daggers of want. My friend Karina told me that you told her you did it so you could warn everyone that you were a vampire. I need no such warning. In fact, I find this irresistible as I am searching for the one who will take my first blood and hail my innocence. Perhaps it will be you, immortal stranger. You okay? Yeah. I like it when it bleeds. That's cool. (laughs) Julia, let me start with you. Um, Tell me you love this movie. This is a very good movie. It's so interesting to watch the shorts always because, and I think we can get to what role they play in the filmmaking ecosystem these days. But what I loved about this is obviously there's a ton of movies about adolescent romance, like the transition from being a person who does not have a romantic self into a person who desires a romantic self, but has not yet found a person with whom to have a romantic self is like the subcurrent of any teen rom-com. Eighth grade was sort of about this, right? Um, what I love and what's unusual about this film is that one, it's somehow very much set in the memory of an adult, even Mm. if the tone is sort of in the present tense. And so there's this like wry, loving, sympathetic perspective on the heartbreak that, um, it's a memory of that emotional urgency as opposed to an enactment of that emotional urgency. And that makes it unusual, I think. And then, you know, this is an animated short and the creators worked with different animators for each of the chapters. So that is really interesting tonally to use animation style as a way of evoking mood. Cause I think you more consistently see, you know, one animation style using different techniques to evoke different moods and vibes. And um, both of those I thought were really interesting elements. 
It's just so wonderful. I really want to send people to it. It could not be more delightful. It's so perfectly paced. It's incredible how much storytelling it gets into 25 minutes or something like that. It's divided into chapters. I think there's four or five chapters within the 25 minutes, uh, each one having to to do with a different dick, which really in the context of this movie doesn't mean penis necessarily because there's not that much sexual activity happening. It's more that all the guys or all but one are dicks. And uh, and the, the character development in these little sketches is so perfect. I mean, since we could only hear the dialogue, obviously, in that audio clip, I just want to stress that the animation is so creative and so wide ranging. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an anime looking one. Um, there's a sort of horror style animation. And uh, there's rotoscoping that happens a lot of the time. So, for example, if you watch this on Vimeo, it's streaming on lots of free platforms. But I watched it on Vimeo, and afterwards, Vimeo served me up a couple little making of videos, Mm -hmm. which I really recommend as well, that show how the rotoscoping was done. So some of the voice actors really look like, you know, the the animated character on screen. And it's just all done with such care. Like, the voice work is excellent. The animation is incredibly charming and uh, and smart about, you know, the way that, that... visual moments evoke what's going on inside the the narrator. So there's moments, for example, when she's looking dreamily at that vampire skater boy that we heard the clip of, she sees herself in sort of like an 18th century painting, like swinging (laughs) in a flowered swing. And then she, you know, sort of turns back to her pimply teen self. It's just, it's so sweet the way it's done. And just so much care was put into each of those visual decisions. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there's, there's nothing with the possible exception of all that breathes that I'm going to root harder for at the Oscars. I think this is a weird curio that deserves to be seen by everybody. It's sort of two different parallaxes or whatever, you know, how your your eyes form 3D vision in relation to one another. It's like there's the older, significantly older self. This takes place in 1991. She's 15. So now she's, what, in her 40s, I guess, or whatever, 50s. But um, looking back on the 15-year-old self, and and yet it's one depth of field from these two perspectives, formed from these two separate perspectives. I would say the other one is a clear understanding, like a precise and clear understanding of what is actually happening between actual people in the real world that derives mostly from the older consciousness in that parallax. And then there's the inner life, the, the I called it a phantasmagoria. It really sort of is that, just this wildly over-literary, over-self-conscious, um, uh, exaggerated inner world of this poor young woman who's just trying to find her way you know, to a first real sexual experience. And it's, it's, it takes animation to bring that fully to life that the narration itself is, is marvelous. The other thing I should say is I found myself laughing out loud, like, like trembling diaphragm, practically double over laughing. In particular, there is a scene with her father that I just I I lost my shit with a pair of noise cancellation headphones on. Your mother tells me you're thinking about having sex. Dad, no, I wasn't. I was trying to have a gentle Regardless. What makes you think you'd like sex? They like it on TV. True. But that's not reality. I mean, that scene was funny and also, like, so cringy. I, I, <laughs> I think I was making a different noise of, like, uh, the whole time. But, yes, pretty amazing. 
Can I ask a broader question? One thing that, that watching this movie made me think about is like, what's the deal with short films? Like, I feel like they used to play a role, like it used to be that to make a movie, you had to shoot actual film, which is quite expensive and develop it and process it and cut it together. And in a world of digital film production, and to be clear, animation remains as complicated. Um, but the tools of filmmaking are different and and create, in some ways, I think, lower barriers to entry, both with, with live action and animation these days. And, um, you know, so do we still need the short as a place where filmmakers learn how to do what they do? Is it is it not a learning ground now? I'm curious, Dana, um, you know, in your work as a critic or as a member of critics groups, like, what is the bigger conversation about shorts these days? I mean, sadly, in critics groups, or I feel like in professional circles, shorts are hardly ever mentioned. But to me, it seems real. I would almost ask the opposite question. Like, why are we so sure that movies have to be a certain length, you know, or right. even TV shows? I mean, right. it's something that I really loved about uh, about High Maintenance back when it was an online show only before it moved to HBO is that the episodes were all different lengths. You know, they were as long as they needed to be. And sometimes that was, you know, I don't know, 17 minutes or something that wouldn't neatly fit into a slot that we understand as a TV show or a movie. And I think this short film, My Year of Dicks, is a great example of how a very non-standard length, like 25 minutes, can make complete sense for the story that that person wants to tell. So, I mean, I would almost feel like, even if it's not the case that this is the official training ground for feature filmmakers in the way that it was in a different era, it's just important to keep that space open, you know, to keep that Oscar category, for example, so that movies that don't fit into the standard size, I'm not quite sure what the limit is. Like, could an hour-long movie be a short? I don't think so. Uh, But keeping a space open for something that is not your standard feature-length movie seems really important to me. Was that, Dana, did that feature-length derived specifically from the technology of reels? Was it when a certain, like a third reel was added or something that we got a relatively standard length? I mean, it's hard to know whether length of feature films, which one would roughly describe as 90 minutes to about two and a half, with anything shorter, anything longer being pretty notable, was that dictated by the human attention span or or the other way around did technology kind of train the human attention span to expect a certain kind of you know i mean it's a three-act structure corresponding with three reels right Right. act one act two act three each roughly a half hour long i mean that's that's kind of a circular question i guess which created which but but certainly film existing on reels was something that happened from the beginning of film technology and and yet features didn't become the norm until, I don't know, probably solidified, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the 1920s. So, yeah, I think it had more to do with with movies going from being a novelty that people were amused by because of the sheer fact of movement on screen to, like you say, a full-length story that would be analogous right. to sitting in a play for a whole evening. Well, there's also the business model, right? Like, you can charge someone a nickel at a Nickelodeon, and they're getting this little bite-sized thing. But, you know, if you build a movie palace and... You know, and they get an organist or an orchestra, right. and you know, you could you're charging them. It's more reminiscent of going to the opera or the theater. You can charge them correspondingly high, you know, amounts of money. But in that picture palace era, of course, you'd have a few shorts leading in, yes. right? And you well, have that's... newsreels and comics and things like that. And there's no longer a space for that on the big screen. We don't sit down and have an appetizer and then the main course. Like no, we did the then. appetizer is commercials. I mean, or or, or you know, at best, previews to uh, coming attractions, but. 
Um, Julia, let, let me put it back on you. Maybe you can quickly answer your own question with the time we have left, right? You'd, you'd want there to be in the realm of fiction, short stories, um, novellas, as well as novels, short novels, full-length novels, and doorstops, right? Like the different stories require different lengths to appropriately tell them, right? Oh, I think we've talked about my relationship with a short story. I don't like a short story, really, as a written form. <laughs> so do we need them? But yes, of course we need them, I suppose. Um, I sort of feel like if you've made a world I like that much, I'd rather just stay there. And if you just want to fuck around with language, write a poem. But um, <laughs> Ouch. But that's my, that's my Philistine self chiming in. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's just interesting to me, so so the rules are 40 minutes, has to be no longer than 40 minutes, including credits. And um, yeah, I mean, I think you're right, Dana, that it's just good that there's this category that honors upstarts and experimentation on this night where there's, you know, so much pressure, like, is it too much upstarts? Is it too much experimentation? Like, why can't we just nominate the popular movies? And of course, this year with Top Gun and Avatar, we'll see what impact that has on viewership for the show. But, you know, the shorts categories were among the categories that were briefly relegated to the pre-show. The Oscars, the Academy has experimented with, oh, do some of the, the smaller categories or the craft care categories or the less glitzy categories need to be honored in a pre-show, which is, of course, what the Grammys does as well. Um, you know, there's a whole afternoon of reading names before you get to see about eight Grammys handed out during the live show. Um, so they're part of th these categories are part of that conversation Two and this year, all of the categories are going to be televised. So we'll get to see who wins this slot. Mm, all right. Well, I, I we all adored the experience of watching my year of dicks. It's very easy to find and it's free, right? I saw it on Hulu. So I guess that's behind a paywall, but it's on Vimeo and various other platforms. And uh, shoot us an email. I want to talk so much more about this movie. All right, let's move on. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right. Well, Dana, what, what I love about this upcoming segment, in addition to discussing your great review essay, is, you know, every year you basically say what you say now, you know, quite elegantly in the lead lead of this piece that you've written for the Atlantic Monthly is there's something wrote about not only the Oscars, but hating the Oscars and sort of decrying them and, you know, describing them as meaningless and exploding their myth. And, and you use that as a starting point um, in order to say far more interesting, comprehensive, and, and very often quite subtle things about uh, the Oscars and our relationship to them. Um, your piece in the Atlantic Monthly is also is a review essay. It's uh, the review the book under review is Michael Shulman's Oscar Wars. You uh, summarize Shulman as saying that effectively beneath all of the pomp, there's dominantly one fact, which is power beginning with this extraordinary story of Louis B. Mayer, which is that, I mean, Mayer just confected the Oscars 
purely as a kind of union busting strategy. There's a wonderful quote where he says, basically give them baubles and awards and they'll be competing so hard for them. They won't notice how badly they're being exploited. I mean, is it, are you convinced by this argument that beneath the Oscars lies pretty much power, the power of moguls in Hollywood? Yeah, I mean, Shulman makes that argument pretty convincingly, but he really doesn't even have to argue much. He just has yeah. to tell the story the of, of what happened. Yeah. Um, this this book, Oscar Wars, is a is a, this was really tough to review because it's six hundred pages long. Uh, so it's and it's an incredibly well researched, dense kind of meticulous, but also very juicy and gossipy history of the Academy itself and then of the, you know, the growth of the awards into the thing that they are now. Um, And in a way, Oscar Wars is not even making an argument, Shulman's book. I mean, I was sort of forming it into one, but what what it really is doing is just, you know, presenting this this mass of evidence of, of exactly that, that I don't ever quite say this in the review, but that essentially the Academy is a machine for maintaining its own prestige, you know, so that the awards will have meaning. And, uh, and I talk a little bit here about the Golden Globes as well, which have been through all of these scandals, not just the recent scandals having to do with, you know, Brendan Fraser, et cetera, but like payola scandals going back decades and the idea that it was the you know the golden globes is this um is this not very respected you know honor within the the industry in order to maintain the facade of you know being a, a worthy honor within the industry like the academy has just gone through so many self reinventions and that's the story that Shulman is telling you know that going all the way back to this moment you reference in 1927 when Louis B Mayer and some other studio executives and bigwigs sat down and said what are we going to do about the fact that Hollywood is unionizing you know um well one of the things that they did is you know create the academy which then grows into the award system. And as the the review and the book also go into, the award system goes so far now beyond the Oscars, right? I mean, that now is the Super Bowl and the rest of the year is the regular season building up to it. And there's not really any downtime because the regular season starts in January with sure. Sundance and everybody's talking about Oscars again. But the fact is, I do have a very, you know, ambivalent leaning toward negative feeling at Oscar time, you know, of are we really doing this again? <laughs> and and yet, at this point, a superstructure has been built around the award system such that there's no outside to it, really. You know, I mean, to be the naysayer is also to be playing a part. That mm-hmm. is an important cog in the wheel driving the whole machine forward. Well, and it's interesting to think about what role that machine plays at a moment when film is in peril. I mean, I think that's fair, truly in peril. Like, does the next generation of culture goers in this country care about film? Like, if if a lot of them turn out for Creed, then maybe yes, and that's heartening. But, you know, one thing that the Oscars can leverage now as it thinks about perpetuating its own power in itself as an institution, which I do think the sort of like, you know, old anthropology studies of the institutional logic of self-perpetuation definitely apply to the Academy. But... They can honestly say now, this is a medium and industry on the back foot. It's it's glitzy, it's powerful, it's wealthy, there's millions of dollars around it, but also it's not TikTok and it's not video games and it's not MMA and it's not all of the many millions of other ways that people entertain themselves these days. Like there is this phase that they're entering of almost being like an advocacy group for film that... Um, puts an interesting spin on the ball of the power struggle around the Oscars, I think. I mean, all the problem with any attempt to assign merit in a public way to anything is that 
the inherent subjectivity of it, regardless of what kind of ulterior power politics might be determining outcomes, is always going to make it controversial. So in some sense, all awards, the Pulitzer, the Nobel, uh, the um, Oscars exist to get it wrong um, and just to be argued about in order to create an ongoing dialogue in which at least quality or excellence or whatever you want to call it is the basis for the discussion as opposed to, you know, sheer box office success. I think I'm now I'm sitting with a film critic and, uh, um, you know, L.A entertainment editor, I should be asking questions, not pontificating. So I have a question for both of you, which is that given Shulman's thesis in his book, is it clear now what power player or what power paradigm or what entity, the agencies, the studios, um, who might be determining outcomes here and to what possibly discernible purpose? Does, Does either one of you have a sense of that? Well, everybody in Hollywood benefits from this ecosystem. It's like a gigantic organic free advertising for all of the product and all of the players who will make the next crop of product, right? Um, and I think the the current question is, will awards shows survive? Will anybody care about the Oscars in five or 10 years? Um, the viewership was already declining before the pandemic and took a precipitous dive. And I think the stakes for this weekend's show are, to me, very much around the viewership. Like, will the Oscars remain a cultural event where people tune in and they want to know who won and they care about movie stars and they care about movies? Like, it's very unclear whether that will continue to be a way in which American culture processes some of the culture that it makes. So that's what I mean is like it's it it feels like a circling of of wagons almost like let's just all be on the same page about the value of the Oscars. And, it was, you know, it was interesting. We um, did reporting at the L.A. Times about the problems with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, with runs, which runs the Golden Globes. And it was our investigation that led to the Globes kind of going off TV for a year. And then they came back on this year and we'll see what happens in the future. But. Um, you know, there were a lot of, as Dana mentioned, the Globes have had, there's basically been a gigantic investigation of the Globes every 10 years for the Globes' existence, and they've found many ways to be suspect in their execution of the task of giving awards to Hollywood films. Um, but there were, there's like a strong contingent of people in Hollywood who had the response to the reporting about the lack of black people among the judges and and all the financial chicanery that our journalists discovered um, of like, oh, it was a fun party. Just let it exist. It's like a good kickoff to the award season. The award season works for everybody. Like there definitely was a current of that, I think, in some of the response from publicists and agents and other folks, even as the publicists were kind of leading the charge in carrying our reporting um, toward uh, a real push for reforms to the HFPA. So I don't know if that answers your question, Steve, but I think like right now the the whole award cycle feels like a representation of the clout of movies and a potential lever to increase and elevate the visibility and power of movies. And, and so that I think there's like more unity around what the whole award cycle can do than dissent at the moment. 
Yeah, I would say in, in response to Steve's question earlier, which I think boils sort of down to who's who's really pulling the strings right, right it's now. It's like who's the new Harvey or Miramax, but the answer could well be nobody. It's too diffuse. And so everyone is And there is never just, really was. I mean, that in yeah, a way is what Shulman's book too. comes to, to prove, is that there was never, even in the days of Louis B. Mayer, kind of one nefarious puppeteer pulling the strings. Right. And the more the Academy has grown in both size and importance in the in the industry, the less that can be the case, you know. So you can point to years uh, like the year of Citizen Kane, which there's a whole chapter about in the book, mm. um, where the movie that was unquestionably the most influential and important cinematic event of that year, with some retrospective, was not the winner, right? For a variety of reasons that could have ranged from, you know, Orson Welles' repu- reputation for profligacy, which was making, you know, producers wary right. of lauding him too much, uh, to the bombing of Pearl Harbor, which happened just a few months before the Oscar ceremony and, you know, made, put people in a more patriotic and sentimental mood and made them vote differently. So, you know, there could be all kinds of outside political or historical forces impinging. It is certainly not possible to just cynically point at the Oscars and say it's always the one rigged right yeah. I mean just look at to Leslie that we talked about last week right this kind of dark horse best actress candidate that comes out of nowhere because of a grassroots campaign um, you know that kind of thing and those kind of crisscrossing forces have happened throughout the history of the Academy and that's what the book I think recounts really well yeah and I at the end of the day my takeaway is anything that you know, revisiting the mistakes of the Nobel Prize, revisiting the mistakes of the Oscars. Well, what are you talking about? You're talking about the losers who were extraordinary, you know, extraordinary films and deserve to be part of a, a canon. And I have kids who do not watch movies. It, they're just not part of their cultural diet. I mean, they were when they were younger, when they were into Star Wars and to a degree Marvel and Harry Potter. But they're, you know, aside from that, they don't, recognize them as a great culture and they read novels I mean, they read Jane Eyre and Middlemarch right so it's not that they don't have the attention span or it's all TikTok or whatever they just do not yet know how to categorize a feature film in the same canonical way or life-changing way as novels nor in the same bite-sized you know sort of social media driven distraction way as, as whatever TikTok or whatever it happens to be Insta and they're falling through the cracks so I mean I anything to keep alive the notion that these deserve to be revisited to me is virtuous. So all hail the Oscars. All right, Dana, thank you. Wonderful piece. Congratulations again. It is a a terrific piece in the Atlantic. Um, I should say it will be out a little bit later this week on the newsstands and online uh, in a couple days after you hear this segment. It's called The Scandalous, Clueless, Irresistible Oscars. It's in the April issue of The Atlantic Monthly by Dana Stevens. Okay, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What uh, What do you got? Oh, I love my endorsement this week, and I hope that both of you will actually follow through and and listen to it, watch it, because it's truly inspiring. Julia, you may have heard about this already as a L.A.-based entertainment journalist, but uh, it's Charlie Kaufman's speech at the uh, at the Writers Guild of America Awards. Did, are you familiar uh, with what I'm talking about? I have about? not seen it. So the Writers Guild Awards were a couple days ago, and Charlie Kaufman, you know, beloved screenwriter, director of Being John Malkovich, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Synecdoche, New York, etc., 
got a kind of lifetime achievement type award called the Laurel Award. So he knew that this award was coming. And the speech that he pre-wrote, I mean, the guy got a writing award for a reason. It was <laughs> absolutely incendiary and incredible and actually really relates to our um, our Oscar conversation, the survival of movies, you know, the sort of um, artistic integrity of movies and its, its future and how threatened it is. Uh, his speech is just beautiful. So I really recommend you go to YouTube and watch the entire thing. It's only mm. about three or four minutes long. Um, if you find it on YouTube, it will also have the introduction uh, by Jesse Buckley, which is quite charming, but you can just skip ahead to Charlie if you want to. I'm just going to read, Variety had some excerpts from it that w- were what led me to watch the speech in the first place. And uh, this will give you a sense of, you know, what kind of aim he is taking at the, uh, at the industry. He says, we are trained to believe that what we do is secondary to what they do. Our work is to reflect the world, say what is true in the face of so much lying. The rest is window dressing at best, triumph of the will at worst. And then skipping ahead a bit. The world is beautiful. The world is impossibly complicated. And we have the opportunity to explore that. If we give that up for the carrot, then we might as well be the executives. I have dropped the ball. I have wasted years seeking the approval of people with money. Don't get trapped in their world of box office numbers. You don't work for the world of box office numbers. You work for the world. Just make your story honest and tell it. They've tricked us into thinking we can't do it without them. The truth is they can't do anything of value without us. I mean, anybody who cares about writing and about movies just has to be so moved and inspired by that. And hearing it in his words, you know, the tiny little unassuming guy that he is, uh, is really quite powerful. So, yes, uh, go on YouTube. It's easy to find Charlie Kaufman's acceptance speech at the Writers Guild of America Awards. Okay, just it's just so apropos of that, Dana, and, and near and dear in a way to your heart, which is that there's a Times article today about Craig Mazin doing exactly what Kaufman is saying to do, right? He listened to, he, he was stuck kind of making a buck, um, make you know, churning out mediocre comedy sequels, and he just was like, no, now I'm going to write, like, and he wrote Chernobyl, and he's turned his career around. And if you followed his career because of script notes, and he'd been on our show, and on and on and on, you were like, wow, the discrepancy between what he was producing and his evident intelligence made one wonder at a distance, right? I didn't know him, but, um, and it just, it that those words are so inspiring, and that's a great example of a Hollywood writer who followed it and his career has taken off as a consequence. Um, anyway, Julia, what do you got? So there's a wonderful, it's a two-part endorsement, but so intertwined that I, I think I'm allowed. I'll try and be efficient. There's a wonderful essay in the New York Times Magazine by Sam Anderson about a new theme park devoted to Hayao Miyazaki in Japan. Um, and the essay is classic Sam Anderson. It's it's wonderful. Um, and it it sets up and reckons with the mystery of Ghibli Park, um, the park devoted to the works of Studio Ghibli, Miyazaki Studio, um, which basically, as Sam describes it, is just like a confusing forest in the middle of a municipal park with like a couple Totoro figurines. <laughs> like It's just the opposite of Disneyland in every possible way. They the One of the precepts of building the park was that they couldn't kill a single tree in the course of doing so, which if you think about like what the environmental impact of Disney World is, is just... Um, kind of culturally mind-blowing. But we listened to the audio of this, Sam Anderson reading the story on a drive a couple weekends ago, which caused us to pop in Kiki's Delivery Service this weekend, uh, a Miyazaki film I had never seen. And I will confess, I haven't seen 
very many Miyazaki films. I feel like maybe we talked about Ponyo, which came out in yeah, 2008 we when we were when in our very, very, very first year of podcasting. And I think I had seen Howl's Moving Castle and Spirited Away and honestly not responded very deeply to the um, just the uh, kind of surrealism and the Dada and the I, I, I was not spirited away by these films. I probably should watch them again. But Kiki's Delivery Service is so great, and and it made me want to go back and kind of start from the beginning and watch the the grounding of the work that went on to to go in ever slightly more surreal and oddball directions. Um, so, read Sam Anderson's article about Ghibli Park, and then watch Kiki's Delivery Service, which is just a great film full of beauty and mystery um, and delight. I've probably watched Kiki's Delivery Service as much as any movie I've ever seen. Really? <laughs> well, I mean, along with um, with Totoro, which was my daughter's first movie she ever saw and oh. is still, I think, her dad's favorite movie in the world, My Neighbor Totoro. But yeah, I think my two top favorite, just in terms of you know them being beloved childhood documents in my household, my two top favorite of Miyazaki's would be those two. I've never seen it. I can't it's- wait. It's, it's such a great older kids movie. I think it's great that your two yes. 10-year-old boys saw it because it really is about this moment, this preteen moment of starting to separate from your parents, you know, and, and, and taking that as far as it can go, sort of going from being a kid to being a an adolescent, but yet it's still a, a children's story. It's just, it's an incredible movie. Well, and my children, like Steve's, don't really love movies like they I think we maybe have a little hope yet with the youngest one the baby because she like loves watching she'll just watch things explode on screen and go boom with delight <laughs> whereas my my tender older boys are always so wounded by the stakes of any film that any 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 potential emotional drama they like crumple and want to run away um but they loved this movie loved it like really really were entranced in a way that i haven't seen them by by a film in a long time um so yeah i just i had sort of filed miyazaki as like brilliant but not quite for me and then watching kiki's delivery service i was like oh god okay i got to go back to the beginning and watch them all again from my current brain and um think about it differently mm. Um, all right. Well, my endorsement this week is a review essay in the New Republic by um, Kim Phillips Fine, who listeners may know is the author of a book called Fear City, The Rise of Austerity Politics in New York City in the 70s. An incredible book about kind of how neoliberalism weirdly arose out of um, the fiscal crisis that almost bankrupted uh, the city of New York in the 70s. Anyway, he has been one of the uh, absolutely sharpest, most intelligent critics, theorizers of of the era that we've all just lived through for 30, 40 years, going back to the 80s. Um, and he has a review essay. Um, it's called The Betrayal of Adam Smith, How Conservatives Made Him Their Icon and Distorted His Ideas. And it's just one of these subjects that's like a near and dear to my heart. I've tried to incorporate this thesis into things that I've written and done a very awkward job. Like I get lost in pedantic over explanation, but I also find it intellectually and morally urgent for people to understand that literally the human being who invented the concept of capitalism and then justified it 
had a his actual ideas have been completely travestied in the name of the thing that he supposedly cheerleaded, which is, you know, the quote unquote free market, a phrase he would never would have used and didn't use. But um, but the one that he supposed that he did use, the invisible hand has been used to justify the market, though he uses it incidentally in, in a thousand or eleven hundred page book. It, it it plays almost no role in his argument whatsoever. In fact, he's really arguing towards the idea that certain kinds of virtues are prerequisites for a market to function. And secondly, the only possible justification for a market is whether it conduces to certain kinds of virtue. And it, it's so clear that we've, I mean, it literally is like a Dostoevsky's take on like Jesus returning from the dead and confronting the grand inquisitor, right? And in Karamazov, right? It's like, it's like just the utter total corruption of what a human being said that ought to and might have guided humanity as it moved into modernity into literally something that's just its total inimical opposite. And Anyway, I've always really admired Smith, and I've really admired the Scottish Enlightenment. And finally, someone has, and he's taking off from a book that's devoted to Smith and the bastardization of his ideas uh, in the hands of right wingers, particularly in America. But it, it, I, I, I think this review essay does a, a great service to intellectual history, but also like <laughs> pointing the way to saving our own soul without hoping for a total socialistic revolution that probably isn't going to happen. Anyway, I think it's a really good essay. Uh, it's online. <laughs> that like a hard sell, Steve. It like articulates the intellectual point you've been trying to make for decades and might save our collective souls as a society. This is like, uh, this sounds like an essay worth reading. <laughs> I hope I'm not overselling it. People are good. like... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I stand by my words. I think it's like a really admirable piece of writing and people should read it. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We love hearing from you. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Hold up. 